morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time, you know, between dusk and dawn when, well, anything can happen, and for the last four years, in an increasing curve, it has been. Happy July 4th, everyone, the birthday of the United States of America. Although, if you were to go back in time or to talk to John Meacham or some of the other presidential historians, they would say that the events of today, uh, of yesteryear, actually took place kind of on the 2nd of July, and then there was more deliberations on the 3rd, and finally, resolution on the 4th. So, here it is, 4th of July. Uh, Before we get going into the regular uh, content of this morning's really intriguing show... We're going to be kind of traveling in an alternate universe, and maybe, well, we'll we'll get into that when we get into that. I want to take a moment to quote to you something very important. If you look around the planet tonight, everything that could possibly be happening that is of a dramatic, paradigm-shattering nature is happening. You know, there used to be this joke, you know, uh, why did God create time? Well, obviously, to keep everything from happening at once. But (laughs) time is somehow broken down a bit, and we are, in fact, dealing with some remarkable events that almost appear to be coalescing. And I've had many conversations with Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert about the larger metaphysics of this with an underscore on the physics, because you know that I think that it's really the changes in the hyperdimensional torsion field that are mandating some of the very, very interesting coalescences that we occur, that we observe occurring now all over the world. One of these, of course, is, you know, think about this day. Think about July 4th. How would you have thought of July 4th in July of 1852 if you were Frederick Douglass? Quoting, Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. That was Frederick Douglass at a time when the United States, under law, allowed millions of individuals to be in chattel to other individuals. In other words, we were a slave society. And at some level tonight, I know this is going to irritate a lot of people, We still are a slave society. You've heard the concept of wage slave? Well, that's what seems to be going on in many quarters. Such disparities, such inequality, such systemic problems that as part of this confluence of major, major changes that are now taking place, not just here, but all over the world, one can only hope that in the full measure of time, the freedom that Frederick Douglass sought will be in fact uh, visibly uh, manifest for every citizen of the United States. So with that as a prologue, let me kind of turn to some interesting things tonight. As you know, uh, in this section of the show, we normally do news. Well, tonight is July 4th, so that's the context. Will we at some point truly be a society of the free and the brave. Item number two. Let me tell some of our new listeners how you get to um, our Radio with Pictures page tonight. What you want to do is go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on that banner for tonight, for July 4th, 2020, um, with Robert Sawyer. That will take you to his guest page. Uh, Either hit the fast links up under the banner, um, or you can click on... uh, Uh, Fast links to Richard that will take you down to my section. And, uh, oh dear, 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 there seems to be an error. 
Oh, we don't want errors. No, no. You can also just scroll. It's not a very long scroll. Item number two. The coronavirus um, has been ravaging the world. We, unfortunately, are leading in new cases. We are leading in deaths, approaching, I think, 130,000 this evening. Uh, we are, uh, you know, at the mercy of this. Other countries, other nations are doing much, much better. This has been an exercise in real-time management, and some societies have fared much better than others. Um, but one in particular stands out, and that's if you click on item number two. Japan has had an extraordinarily low death rate. And the biggest question now is why? I mean, we have almost 130,000 deaths as of this evening, Japan, 900 and 72. Only exceeded by South Korea, who's managed to keep their death rate from this vicious virus to a little over, a little under 300, 282. So the question then is, what is Japan doing, doing right? If you read that item, and it's rather extensive, and it goes into a lot of uh, uh, detail, it's by uh, Rupert uh, Wingate Hayes of the BBC from the Tokyo Bureau. It's really interesting that Japan, without lockdowns, without mandatory, you know, stay-at-homes, without closing businesses, without restricting travel, even from China, back in December of 2019, it's been able to hold its own in an extraordinary effort to keep this disease at bay. I mean, this is truly, truly an extraordinary example and there's an awful lot of epidemiologists all over the world that are asking the very fundamental question, what is Japan doing right? Well, I may venture a small um, guess, and I think it has to do with masks. Yes, that has become, for some reason in our society, that has become a bizarre and very um, dirty word in in. In, in, in major portions of our of our culture. I do not know why. I mean, I grew up, you know, following the Lone Ranger. In fact, I grew up sometimes imitating the Lone Ranger um, when I wasn't doing Superman. And the other day, the President of the United States, uh, in an interview, I think it was with Fox, he said, yes, he had a black mask and he put it on and, you know, it looked good, you know. And then he said, it kind of reminded me of the Lone Ranger. I mean, since when was it not appropriate or heroic to pretend you are, in a larger sense, helping people like the Lone Ranger? Remember the physics of masks, we are told, and I've actually seen experiments that demonstrate this. When you wear a mask, you're protecting other people. When they wear a mask, they protect you. So what should be a tremendously unifying, trivial thing to do I mean, one of the critics the other day of this, oh, we're bridging our freedoms, and when I woke up this morning, I was free, and now I have to wear it. No, no, no. The mask is a symbol as well as a physical device to keep others safe. It's really a symbol of altruism. It's the, it's the, it's the glue that kind of binds a society together where you want other people to think of your welfare as you're thinking of theirs. And yet it has become this extraordinary division in the country, and it, it should not be, because the magic secret of why Japan's death rate is so low is they've been able to keep at an extraordinarily open level in their society. I mean, things have just kind of gone on as usual. It's been, quote, almost normal, except they've all worn masks. Now, there have been critics who have said, uh, and I saw one of these the other day, oh, oh, very elaborate paper, wearing masks will make you sick, and you will die. And if you don't die from the, from the virus, you're going to die from all kinds of, you know, pent-up diseases that you normally kind of expew into the environment. I mean, give me a break. This is, this is nuts. Japan is even more extraordinary because Japan has a greater percentage of its citizens being senior citizens 
than almost any other country on the planet. And as we know, as you get older, this disease attacks you at a progressive upward sloping curve that goes almost asymptotic. I mean, straight up when you get up into those senior years. So your your chances of dying from this, if you're above 65, is something like 50 times greater than if you're in your 30s or 40s. Japan is filled with senior citizens. So why are they not dying in the awful profusion that American seniors in nursing homes and care facilities, etc., have died over the last several months? Again, it has to do with masks. It turns out that the Asian custom of wearing masks, particularly when you're not feeling well, originated in Japan over 102 years ago. That was their reaction, as it was the world, in the face of an extraordinary problem, an extraordinary disease, when there was nothing they could do except distance and try to protect from, you know, contact, respiratory contact. Um, they began wearing masks. And the Japanese never put the, the custom down. Apparently, when you're ill, when you don't feel well and you have to go out or you're coughing or you have a cold or whatever, or the flu, the Japanese put on a mask. It's culturally part of their protocol. It bequeaths and, and bespeaks of concern for other people, other citizens, your fellow countrymen. And because they've been doing this for 100 years, they do it automatically. It's just custom. It's, it's it, what you do. It's part of the social fabric that unites and knits Japan culture together. I would say that the single biggest unknown factor that all the epidemiologists are now scratching their head over, why is Japan, you know, suffering so little compared to the rest of the world and certainly compared to us, is because of management decisions, good tracking, good case monitoring, and people keeping distance. A lot of people voluntarily in Japan stayed home because when leadership in Japan says, this is for your benefit, a lot of citizens in Japan actually believe that. There is, a, there is a level of trust between the administrators of Japanese society and the Japanese people themselves that does not obtain here. We have become because of the breakdown of so many, 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 you know, government programs and government mandates and government edicts, etc., etc., we have become as a society incredibly suspicious of everything and everyone. And it turns out that trust, isn't this surprising? It turns out the trust among people and trust of people in their duly elected government and their government representatives is critical in getting through this until there are some medical breakthroughs, which are on the horizon. We're looking at a couple of them, and there's one in particular that I'm going to do an entire special show in the next couple of weeks because I think we have found something totally unique, something remarkable, something, frankly, I have never seen before, and I've run this now, by several other people, you know, kind of like, you know, peer review. And each of these, who was an expert analyst, has said, good grief, what is going on with that? Now, I don't want to be overly mysterious, but I also don't want to prematurely claim something until we've really checked it out. So I'll just say in closing on this section that um, we found something really remarkable about COVID-19 that apparently nobody else has noticed. And I'm astonished both at what we found and the fact that apparently nobody else has found it. So in due time, meaning we have you know some days here to do some more checking, we're assembling a, a, a group, a panel, to discuss this and present options and ask for your input. And I guarantee you that is a show on the other side of midnight you do not want to miss. On tonight's show, um, what can I say? Let's go back to uh, Radio with Pictures, okay? Remember, click on the banner tonight, 
theothersideofmidnight.com. That takes you for July 4th to tonight's guest page. Scroll down. Uh, did you know that you're in the middle of a lunar eclipse right now? Well, you wouldn't know if you went and even looked at the moon unless you're really, really, really good at astronomy and you kind of remember what the moon looks like because the moon tonight is sailing through the penumbra of planet Earth. This big, long, open cone-shaped geometry extending in the direction opposite the sun, the Earth's shadow, but it's a partial shadow and it, it, it penetrates so briefly into the uh, penumbra that unless you're really of keen eye, you're not going to notice, uh, unless you are you know, really a high-end amateur astronomer or can take pictures and do measurements, but it's going on. It's not a total lunar eclipse. It's not even, you know, visible to the casual observer. But given that this audience knows so much of the physics of planetary and satellite alignments, I just thought you'd kind of like to know that all during this show, there's a remarkable alignment between the sun, the earth, and the moon. And the moon is skimming just about a degree away from the center of the shadow, which in horseshoes would make a um, near miss, and in hyperdimensional torsion field physics is about the same. And I cannot help but wonder what the Chinese are thinking tonight, because remember, they have two spacecraft, live spacecraft, on the surface of the moon, connected by a direct line through the core of the moon, one Chang-3, on the front side, the side that you can see right now, kind of like toward the upper left, if you're looking carefully. The other, on the far side, 45 degrees below the equator, which means if you could look through the moon, you'd see it as a little tiny dot about uh, halfway down uh, on the lunar disk on the far side. And we know, again, from sources and from you know analysis, that those two spacecraft right now are recording the torsion field reactions of instruments in those two unmanned spacecraft to being on the moon during an eclipse of the sun, as seen from the moon, a partial eclipse of the sun, and they are watching the instruments resonating. What are they concluding? Well, we kind of said the magic word, <clears throat> sun. Um, did anybody see a release by NASA earlier this week where they released a 10-year time-lapse set of images, over 425 million individual photos taken every 0.78 seconds of the sun with multiple instruments, multiple filters, multiple cameras for over 10 years. And they selected, I think it was something like 36,000, uh, scattered across those 10 years, and they put them all together as a single image, which is the link uh, in number four. If you click on that link, that will take you to the uh, uh, NASA video. Just scroll down a little bit, click on it, and it's 61 minutes of the most extraordinary live action of the sun, and taken in a very short wavelength, ultraviolet wavelength, so you're looking at the super high temperatures of the lower corona, and the uh, upper, upper, upper chromosphere in ultraviolet. And then they put it up in a false color, kind of a yellowish, because everybody knows the sun is yellow, so they did the false color. You know, Actually, if you had the eyes that could see in the far ultraviolet, it would appear intense, intense violet, but that's just kind of like a nitpick. Anyway, if you look at item number four, you'll notice that I put up a graphic that connects you to this extraordinary uh, solar dynamics observer 10-year video. And it demonstrates that at the peak of the sunspot cycle, every 11 years, sunspots start out near the equator at the peak of the cycle, then they recycle to around 33, 34 north, and as the cycle progresses, they work their way down in both hemispheres toward the equator again. And the peak of the so-called sunspot cycle occurs every 11 of those years, more, more or less, at 19.5 degrees north and south. And that graphic demonstrates. Now, 
if I was to take the time and make up our own graphic, which I actually may do in the coming week when I have some time, if they'd only taken like 150 images uh, right around the time of solar max, then that bright set of bands, north and south, which is all the solar activity seen on the sun over 10 years, would narrow to a thin, brilliant line at 19.5 north and 19.5 south, evidencing that the sun, in fact, is operating not merely as a thermonuclear conversion machine, converting matter in 3D into a fractional percentage of energy and releasing that as this brilliant glowing photosphere and a light, you know, um, uh, uh, globe that expands at the speed of light throughout the solar system and then keeps going and going and going. And in four light years, it's crossing the boundaries of Alpha Centauri. In 8.7 years, the distance of Sirius, well, you, you kind of get the idea. It all begins with the sun with a mysterious cycle of activity that goes up and down every 11 years. The full cycle actually is 22 years because the magnetic field of the sun flips back and forth and that's what causes the surface activity to wax and wane but to peak at 19.5 degrees at the peak of every solar cycle. Now this is very curious because as you know we have a number of spacecraft up there uh, tonight, Kepler, which was just retired, and something called TESS, which was just launched. And these spacecraft are able to look at um, not only planets that are crossing the tiny stellar disks seen hundreds or thousands of light years away, but they also can chart the wax and wane of intrinsic activity on stars like the Sun, like we can monitor the Sun's activity, except of course you can't see what's going on on the surface of the star, so they look at light curves when it gets brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer in some rhythmic fashion, looking at stars like the sun, G-type stars, that have solar cycles that are similar. Except if you look at number five, item number five under my 19.5 diagram, it turns out that recent work seems to, seems to have revealed that the Sun is a lot less active than similar stars that astronomers have charted. And I mean, how is that possible? Well, that's part of the discussion tonight with our guest, Robert Sir. I'm going to save item number six for more toward the end of the show. My guest is Robert J. Sawyer, who is one of only eight writers in history and the only Canadian to win all three of science fiction's top awards for the best novel of the year, The Hugo, which he won in 2003 for Hominids, the Nebula Award, which he won in 1996 for The Terminal Experiment, and the John W. Campbell Memorial Award, which he won in 2006 for Mindscan. His latest novel is the number one Locust bestseller, Quantum Night, Robert lives in Toronto and was recently named a member of the Order of Canada, the highest civilian honor bestowed by the Canadian government. He is also the past president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America and one of the initial nine inductees into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. So without further ado, I would like to welcome to the other side of midnight my guest Robert Sawyer. Robert, welcome back. Richard, it's a delight. Thank you so much for having me back, and happy Independence Day. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. We we have that you know tiresome habit of doing this every every four <laughs> years. Um, oh darn, I didn't set the TVR to record the fireworks. Oh well, <laughs> it's two hours different on the East Coast anyway. Um, before we get into the thrust of tonight, how did you want? Because we have a lot of new audience. You know, we're we're growing, we're expanding, we're in a hundred and I think 98, 199 countries, something like that. Whoops. How did you get into writing science fiction? 
So I'm part of that first generation of science fiction writers who came to it, not through the classic pulp magazines of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but through the media science fiction of the 1960s. Uh, I was born in 1960, as a matter of fact, just turned 60 years old. Uh, and um, there was a confluence there, because not only did we have Star Trek premiere in 66, 2001 in 1968, the movie 2001, the original Planet of the Apes in 1968. But throughout that decade, we also had the space race to get humans to the moon, mm -hmm. the race between the United States and the no longer extant Soviet Union. That combination of the dawn of the space age, as well as a real... Uh, broadening of the popular audience for science fiction because it was on primetime TV, because A-list movies were being made with A-list actors uh, in the science fiction genre, uh, had never come before. And I was just enchanted. And I mentioned, you know, like anybody else, I'm not happy about being 60. I wish I was 50 or 40 still. But the beauty of being born she, in the, a she, year... Robert, if you don't tell anybody, they'll never know. No, no. You, but there's you, the, you don't sound apropos. like 60. Oh, you're absolutely right, Richard, but it's apropos. I was born in 1960 so it ends in a zero watch my dad took me in 1968 to see the movie 2001 oh, a space odyssey my. so even at eight years old because i was born in 60 i could do the math i'd be 41 right i'd be 41 when 2001 became the real year. Now, my dad was a little older than most of my friends' dads because he was a university professor and he was, you know, had been busy being a grad student before he had kids. So he's sitting next to me in the theater there in 1968. He was 43. And again, I was able to do the math. I said to myself, when I'm younger than dad is now, we will have interplanetary travel. We will have cities on the moon. We will have space tourism. We will have suspended animation through hibernation technology. We will have great centrifugal wheel space stations. We will have artificial intelligence, as we saw in HAL 9000. Now, we didn't get at one of those things, really. Don't you feel a bit cheated? I expected I all those things, too. Well, we were promised them, right? It was a promissory note. Yep. You know, traditionally, science fiction and my editor, I, I, you know, I've done 24 novels now. My editor used to say, don't put dates in your novel. They're just going to catch up with you. You're going to be in trouble. Be coy about when something is set. But Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke were blatant 2001. And, of course, uh, Kubrick didn't live to see 2001, but Clarke did. Clark did, and he had to say, eh, well, okay, I'm off by a little bit. Yep. We will get all those things. But it was the excitement of dreaming about that promise tomorrow, to answer your question, that drew me into writing science fiction. Wow. I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it there. My guest this morning is Robert Sawyer, eminent science fiction writer, hard science fiction writer that I, uh, that I should... Uh, be talking about this music is very interesting this is the score that nasa put behind the 10-year sdo video i mean they're getting pretty jazzy over there i mean they're they're actually showing creativity far beyond engineering so we'll be using this on and off during the evening just kind of listen and think about it is what it is to orbit our star which again, as I just noted in uh, one of those figures, seems not to be a normal, average star at all. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return.
The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from the other side of midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus to bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire is to awaken your imagination with questions, questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. And the other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, 2 hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. everyone to the other side of midnight my name is Richard C Hogan my guest this morning is Robert Sawyer noted science fiction author from our neighbors to the north from Canada so Robert um, when you had this this idea that something was missing that the 2001 we got was not the one we ordered was the reaction to okay I can I can I can do it better I can lay out where we should be as opposed to where we aren't. Well, that's exactly it. You know, uh, we did not get the jetpacks. We did not get the flying cars or anything that we were promised by the Jetsons. We didn't get what Arthur C. Clarke promised us for 2001. But we did have some optimistic visions, Star Trek being the one that really captured my imagination. And the idea, which is a new 20th century idea, really, that humanity is a work in progress, that we're getting better and we're striving and trying to become more than just the primates that, you know, first stood upright on the African savanna four million years ago. Uh, and science fiction... Now, it can be a very depressing dystopian genre, but what drew it to me was the possibility of exploring roadmaps for really positive versions of tomorrow. And there, there's no better playground for the mind than being able to say, I've got all of the future and all of the universe in which to explore different ideas, different ways of being, different ways of thinking, different modes of thought, different interpretations of reality. It's such an intoxicating, and I say that as a teetotaler, intoxicating playground. Um, you know, it really, because, you know, you got all the time and space. I'm a Doctor Who fan, so. Oh, uh, me too. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, it's amazing how that has lasted over 50 years. It's it's astonishing. It's probably, I think it's the longest running science fiction show ever on television. 
As that is tank? true. Okay, okay. But yeah, Star Trek uh, was a huge, you know, my old friend Gene Roddenberry, was a huge factor in replacing that, you know, is that all there is, with no, it's just been a bit delayed. Uh, did you make note of when we did the show a couple weeks ago of this extraordinary thing that Elon Musk has now done, which I, in all modesty, have said basically ushers in the second age of space, and we're not going to get all the stuff that Arthur promised us through NASA, through governments. We're going to get it through folks like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos. Yeah, you know, I have some mixed feelings about this. You're absolutely right. Somebody had to, you know, do it, right? Because NASA certainly was dragging its heels. Now, part of NASA dragging its heels is the whole federal government in the United States dragging its heels in terms of how much they want to prioritize spending money this way. But that said, there's I'm up here in Canada. We're a little less capitalist, a little more socialist up here. There's part of me that laments that ultimately it's profiteering billionaires who are setting the agenda. And, you know, Jeff Bezos is on track to be the world's first trillionaire if his uh, company keeps growing at the rate it's been growing this decade he'll be the world's first ever trillionaire uh, and that's all wonderful and he certainly got the money hear, to indulge his hobbies i hear a science fiction novel there somewhere <laughs> <laughs> well you know i mean uh, uh, the connection between wealth and going to space has always been, it's always been very expensive to go to space the one thing that uh, jeff bezos has done that Elon has not done yet, you know, with the with the Tesla uh, is drive prices down, right? Jeff is all about make it cheaper, make it cheaper, make it cheaper, and what we are looking forward to is a chance for people like you and me to go into space, something that would never be possible at the kind of prices that it has always cost per pound or per kilogram to put something into even low Earth orbit using NASA as the quote-unquote contractor oh, to wait, do wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. When you look at NASA compared to, let's say, Musk, SpaceX, one of the striking things that he, and we're getting an echo, there's a feedback loop, so somebody close the circuit, please. Um, when you do that comparison, I mean, the SLS, the Space Launch System, the replacement for the Saturn V, that's sure. supposed to take Artemis to the moon in, what, now it's a couple of years, they've delayed it because problems in putting this huge booster together it's going to cost um oh what are the current estimates like a hundred billion dollars or something mm -hmm. it's a staggering amount of money elon musk has put together a spacecraft called the falcon heavy which can do the same thing for literally one tenth the cost a hundred no, you're absolutely right and and i don't mean to diss Elon Musk. You're absolutely right. Uh, but his goal has never been selling, uh, just a, a, as a business person, his goal has been the luxury market, right? Tesla's a luxury car. And Bezos's goal has always been to put the Dollaramas, the dollar stores, and the Kmarts and the Walmarts of the world out of business, mm. the low end of the market. So in that sense, but there, you're absolutely right. Both of them, 100% richer, both of them are working towards making it feasible for, you know, uh, 200 pounds of human being to go into orbit mm -hmm. at a cost that's no different than our parents or our grandparents would have spent on a luxury cruise in their day. And that's extraordinary and something that I certainly look forward to as a possibility in, you know, in the, in the three, four, if I'm lucky, five decades that I've got left. You know, I haven't followed it that closely because <clears throat> there's too much to follow. But didn't Musk a few years ago publish freely the blueprints for the Falcon 9 and the blueprints for Dragon? And in other words, he's basically given to any entrepreneur who can assemble the capital the foundation to do it better, faster, quicker, and cheaper than he's done it. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I was dissing capitalism a moment or two ago, but, but you raise a very good point because the whole value of capitalism is competition. 
competition is you've got an idea, I got a better idea. Yeah, well, I can one-up you. Oh, yeah, well, I can refine that. And when you realize, as Musk did, I don't have any competitors. I don't have anybody else who's working on this precise thing that I'm working on. Jeff Bezos has got his eyes on this. I've got my eyes on that. Uh, and, and one or two other billionaires out there, Richard Branson, of course. Uh, but they're not competing directly with each other because each of them has their own particular vision of what they want to accomplish. I and think so part when you that, have no comp yeah, Robert, you have no competition, you've got to create it. Well, I think, Robert, part of that is that we're at the beginnings of what I call the second age. And there needs to be an infrastructure kind of laid down. And then based on that infrastructure, there'll be an explosion of competitive ideas, competitive players. I mean, look at look at what could happen with servicing, you know, a moon base on the moon or a huge a la, you know, Kubrick style, Clark style, you know, floating hotel lazily circling with artificial G, artificial gravity, like von Braun's wheel in Earth orbit. I, I, in other words, it's almost like we have turned the clock backward or we're in an alternate universe to the one where in the 1950s somehow we took a wrong turn and we wound up where we are tonight. Well, I don't dispute that. There are definitely better time paths out there. You know, the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, there's a different reality world line for every possible reality that might exist. And there ain't no way we're in the best of the bunch. Hmm. Okay, that's kind of a convoluted way for me to get into tonight's really fascinating subject, which is an alternate universe perspective on terrestrial history circa 1940s in Berkeley, California. Um, That's right. This is the 75th year of the detonation of the Trinity explosion south of me here in New Mexico tonight in the land of enchantment on July 16th, 1945. The three dawn skies lit up with something that, uh, depending upon your model, either had never been seen on planet Earth before, i.e., a nuclear explosion, a nuclear test weapon, or if you want to kind of follow the lead of uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the lead scientist who created the bomb, put together the team, you know, had the maximum resources of the United States government behind him, and in just a few years achieved the impossible. But when it went off that morning, when he's standing there watching this extraordinary catastrophic explosion that turned night into day, you know, a thousand suns, that that cliche now. He quoted, apparently out loud, from the Vedas, for I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, indicating that maybe in the Vedas is an echo, Robert, of a history where in this timeline we did all this before that's how a previous high cycle of civilization ended and Oppenheimer's involuntary, what they call excited utterance, lasts down through the ages in multiple timelines because we did something that for a brief microsecond turned human beings into veritable gods. Yes, you raise a very good point. When you introduced me, so my most recent book, of course, was Quantum Night, which is not. It was my penultimate book. The recent <laughs> one is The Oppenheimer Alternative. Yeah, got to send me a better copy then. You're, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a word, believe me. I'm have have, have, have a word with your Carmen. PR team. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carmen <laughs> is terrific, but I will, I will update his, his uh, files. But so The Oppenheimer Alternative, and we're talking about J. Robert Oppenheimer. Right. Well, at uh, the University of Rochester, Oppie was giving a talk, and he was at you know to young people who for whom this was now this was not, after the bomb had been dropped by well after years. the bomb this was in yeah. the 1960s Oppenheimer ah. died in 67, uh, and he was asked by a student was this uh, the bomb at Alamogordo was that the first one ever to be detonated, mm. and Oppenheimer's reply and this is verbatim was well yes in modern times ah. Of 
He actually said that in modern times. Wow. Yes, this was the first. So you raise a very good point. Oppenheimer was a polyglot, as you know. Uh, and not only was he quoting specifically from the Bhagavad Gita, uh, he was quoting his own translation oh. of that text. He had been so taken with the notion of Hindu scripture that he had decided that he had to read it in the original. And so he studied under the great uh, um, uh, classicist, Arthur Ryder, to learn Sanskrit. And the only line of Hindu scripture that most non-Hindus can quote is the one that you just recited from memory. Now I'm become death of the story of world. <laughs> and that specific translation, that specific choice of words is Oppenheimer's own translation into English from the Hindu, which he read in the original. Wow. Well, to uh, generalists, because, you know, when you look at it in perspective, there was a time, I'm not sure, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there was real deliberation among the guys on the Manhattan Project out here in the wilds of uh, northern New Mexico when they, you know, detonated this thing in, in southern New Mexico, would it literally incinerate the atmosphere? That's right. And burn up the entire world? And they voted to go ahead. That to That's me. That's right. That, that to me, you know, it's like, it's like when you think about it, we all could be having this dream, you know, in some other reality, some other dimension, but they made that incredible fateful choice for what were there on the planet at that time? Maybe what? A billion people, something like that? There were about three at that time. Three, three billion. Three billion, okay. So yeah. they made a unilateral decision. And I don't know the details enough because I haven't followed this in years, but was it basically Oppenheimer himself that decided that the chance was so low that they, in in the in the face of what Japan was doing and Germany was suspected of doing, and the Russians, the Soviets were, we knew they were doing, that we had to do it? So, yes, you raise a fascinating question because you're absolutely right that this small group of scientists who had not even con congressional oversight, right? They were what we would call today black ops. Oh, deep, deep, right? deep, deep state. Completely secret. And it was Teller, Edward Teller who we better, we think of today as the father of the hydrogen bomb, the bomb that came after, the atomic bomb. But he was the one in 1942 who first put this on the table when they just started the Manhattan Project. He said, you know, one fission bomb might ignite all the hydrogen in the oceans oh. or all the nitrogen in the atmosphere. Oh the and if one or the other, let alone both happened, we would destroy the entire biosphere of earth the planet would you know the rocky planet would exist right. but there'd be no life it would just scrub the planet of life and they actually paused and tried to redo the math and it was hans beta who said well you know teller says it's plausible or probable i think it's only a slight chance <laughs> maybe maybe 10% maybe 10% that that will happen. <laughs> and so they went ahead and did it. And you're exactly right. Now, they were uh, desperate to prove that this thing worked. They were receiving a lot of pressure from General Groves, who was the actual head of the Manhattan Project. Oppie was the scientific director, but the head of the project was General Leslie R. Groves. And as Groves said to Oppenheimer, if this thing doesn't work, I, meaning Groves, I'm going to spend the rest of my life appearing in front of congressional committees explaining how I wasted $2 billion. So you make it work. And they went ahead and tested it. They didn't even, you're in New Mexico right now, they didn't even tell the governor of New Mexico until 30 minutes before the test. Groves called the governor and said, you might have to declare an emergency, in third, a state of emergency, statewide, in 30 minutes, if this goes wrong, because we're about to set off the world's first atomic bomb on you in your state and no clearance. No, you know, we're just doing it. And if it goes wrong, be prepared. 30 minutes warning. Wow. Wow. OK, so it worked. 
What it's, at what point did you begin to look at this extraordinary story, this being the anniversary? You know, we're, Americans don't do well on kind of odd anniversaries. We love centuries. We love 10 years. We yes. love half centuries. But this is kind of awkward. It's the 75th. I mean, it's how did you decide to take another look at Oppenheimer and that whole process and come out in an extraordinary place in this new novel where you've come out. Well, you're exactly right that the 75th doesn't have the resonance of the 50th or the 100th. The last time this really was considered, the whole history of the Manhattan Project and the morality of uh, the nuclear bombings, was, was for the 50th, 25 years ago. And great books came out then. For instance, Richard Rhodes wrote the quintessential magisterial history the, called simply the making of the atomic bomb is that the Richard, one with the hardcover red cover uh it has a red cover hardcover edition yes I the paperback think i read that yeah. yeah quite a significant oh book. my god it was, it was talk about a page turner it, 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 it is riveting now do you want to <clears throat> recap what we did or do you want to save it in the you know venue of the of the novel you've created because oh, again, we're, 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 we're talking to yeah. we're talking to at least one or two generations who haven't a clue what we're talking about. We don't teach history anymore. No That's one understands right. why the United <clears throat> excuse me why the United States became the only country on Earth to ever use a nuclear weapon as a weapon of war in an active conflict situation. The only country, the leading democracy on the planet eliminated hundreds of thousands of people, not only in the firestorms in Tokyo, but then by detonating on two separate cities a few days apart in August, the first two nuclear weapons of war. How did we, a civil democratic society, as we like to think of ourselves, how did we become the enfant terrible of planet Earth? It's a fascinating story. A man named Leo Zillard, a Hungarian emigre to the United States, was the first person, and even before he got to the United States when he was in London, uh, England, after escaping Hungary before uh, it was, uh, you know, closed down by the Nazis, uh, conceived of the notion of a runaway nuclear chain reaction that might result in a giant explosion. And when he got to the United States and he was fleeing Hitler, as so many were, he realized that if Hitler got this technology first, it would be disastrous for the world. So Leo Zillard... He would own the world, in other words. uh, He would be able to subjugate the entire planet. And we'd all be speaking German. And we'd all be speaking German. The Third Reich would have won World War II which was the United States had you know, only just come into World War II uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Uh, and that same month that the bombing of Pearl Harbor occurred, Leo Zillard went to see Albert Einstein. And he brought with him a letter he had drafted to President Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt had never heard of Zillard, but everybody mm-hmm. had heard of Albert Einstein. He said, Albert, they'd known each other for, for decades. They, in fact, had, had shared patents together on various inventions. He said, Albert, sign this letter. FDR will have to listen to you. And in it, he says, you know, the research of me, Leo Zillard, and Enrico Fermi, another great physicist, an Italian who had also fled uh, you know, from uh, from what was happening in Europe. Pay attention to their research, Mr. President, because we need to have this bomb before anybody else does. And that was what motivated the creation of the Manhattan Project and the three-year effort. It took almost three years to create the world's first atomic no, bomb. Wait, 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 wait. We took 10 years to get men to the moon. They developed an atomic weapon in three years in the 1940s without computers, without Univac, without, I mean, they had slide rules, uh, without email. I mean, I mean, this is like, are you telling a science fiction, Robert, already? No, what's fascinating (laughs) about this, of course, is now 
the tricky thing about going to the moon was we also wanted to bring those guys back. If we had been willing to send Buzz and Neil to die on the surface of the moon, we could have done it in five years instead of ten. But uh, we had some safety concerns there, which we didn't have in creating the atomic bombs. But it was very interesting because uh, that, in fact, is the key fact. I was talking to somebody quite recently about this uh, who said that's the reality, that right now anything we do, whether it's Elon Musk or whether it's NASA or whether it's at hospitals or anywhere, safety is job one. Imagine a time when safety wasn't even job one, job two, or job three, but maybe the sixth or seventh priority. Mm. The number one priority was saving the world from the Nazis. That was the most important thing. And if some people died, if we took a chance of setting the oceans or the atmosphere on fire, if we had an explosion that wiped out New Mexico during a test, that was a price we were willing to pay because the enemy was so reprehensible. And the whole way of life, not just of Europe, we were realizing, but the whole world was in danger that we said, okay, we'll cut every corner imaginable. Even the Soviets, who lost a number of astronauts or cosmonauts in the 60s, as you know. Um, well, there have been uh, wild rumors. We know some. I'm we know for still, sure. I'm still lost. not certain that we don't, we know everything. Oh, I'm sure there were, so. you know, the Soviets were not transparent then uh, about what happened. But we know that they lost at least three Soyuz who just died you know, during descent, right, in, in a Soyuz capsule coming back. Um, we lost Americans, too. We lost, uh, you know, the Apollo 1 fire. But we tried really hard, and even the Soviets were trying really hard uh, to not kill their astronauts or their cosmonauts. They took it more carefully than they would have if the goal had been whoever gets to the moon first would save the world, we would have cut some more corners there. But you're right, never before and never since has there been a scientific undertaking that was so concentrated with essentially an unlimited budget. There was no congressional oversight, as I said. So whatever requisition General Grove sent in, I want this amount of land here in Oak Ridge to make a uranium enrichment plant. I want to take over the um, Los Alamos uh, Ranch School in um, in New Mexico and turn it into a secret lab. I want all the uranium that can be found in the world. Uh, I want it all. Just sign the chit, and it would be made. It would be made to happen. Nobody checked the figures with the sums. Gosh, you know, I was born in 1945. Big secret, guys, just revealed, 1945, you know, and I grew up with all of this stuck and cover. Well, well, we'll get into all that. So anyway, hold it there. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Robert Sawyer, who has written an extraordinary what-if novel. What if during the development in World War II, the United States, that tiny cadre of brilliant geniuses assembled here in the land of enchantment in the 1940s to create something that, as Oppenheimer said, had never existed before, maybe? What if they'd found out something else? We'll get into that. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some 
amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Mm-hmm.